Hello and welcome to another thrill-packed edition of You Bet Your Garden, coming to you from the PPL Public Media Center at PBS 39 in the Christmas city of Bethlehem, PA. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up later in the show, a local farmer has figured out how to get more money for his crops than you might imagine by using fresh herbs and berries and things like that to make kombucha a popular drink right now. We'll also tell you which of the 30,000 different types of scarab beetles devoured your roses this summer and what you can do about it next year and take lots of your fabulous phone calls at 1-833-727-9588. John, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hey, Mike. Hello, John. How are you, man? I'm good. How are you and your new digs? I am just ducky, ducky in water. And where is John doing good? In Yell Springs, Ohio. I, um, you might know the area. I, I saw you in south of here in Xenia oh, a couple of years ago with your giant garlic bowl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm very proud of my garlic. I take it around and brag about it. So you're also, well, you're also yeah. just outside of the Dayton area. You're listening to us from Antioch University. Yeah, WISO, yep. Yep. Well, uh, I, I have a habanero pepper, which seems to have uh, survived the winter. Um, I certainly did not want to replant it because it was way too hot for, for me. And, I, I mean, I like jalapenos, but habaneros, shoot, man, I thought I was going to vomit when I whipped them up with some zucchini. I, grew. <laughs> I was like, I can't get these down. <laughs> so, but anyway, they came back up after a hard winter. It was, you know, we had a lot of days in January that were like seven below. And got four stems now and it's loaded with habanero peppers. Okay, so you had a habanero plant planted in the ground in your garden. Yeah, yeah. And it seemed to die back over the winter, but then new growth came up from the ground? Yep. It's so, like four stems. It's got four stems now. Okay, Um I'm going to propose what happened is the same thing that happens with cherry tomatoes, that some of the fruits, because as you say, they were too hot for you. So you probably let some fruits hit the ground and just rot away there. And Man, then I'm going to suppose. I, I, I cleared them. I cleared the plant and, and went through my shredder. So they'd be all over my garden. Well, <laughs> you know, there's, there's worse plants to come up. Um, but they're, they're not everywhere. I really think the roots survived. That's, it that's, it, it would be unlikely. I think the better chance is that some seeds hit the ground and these are new plants. That happens a lot with tomatoes. But no matter yeah, what well, happens... I'm familiar, I'm familiar with that, with, with tomatoes. Right. But for one thing, um, if they were cross-pollinated with my other peppers, I, I don't believe you'd still be getting habaneros. No, no, peppers... That's one of the nice things about saving seed of peppers is they don't cross-pollinate. Okay, okay. Neither did tomatoes. Noticed, I would have noticed if there was four little pepper seedlings growing there. Yeah. what what? Uh, it's squash plants that if you save the seed, you get a different form of squash the next year. Oh, yeah, they're, they're open-pollinated. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're really, very they're really promiscuous crazy. plants. So yeah, they sure are. If you grow a hot pepper or even a bell pepper that you really like, it's actually fairly easy to turn that into a perennial plant. All you do is you dig it up out of the ground, preferably in September, before the nights start to get too cool, 
and you pot it up into a nice plastic pot with good drainage. You use uh, a professional mix, a seed starting mix, soil free mix, potting mix, a nice light thing that has no garden soil in it to fill in around the tops and the bottom of the plant to fit it in the pot. And then you take a garden hose with an adjustable nozzle and you blast every inch of that plant because aphids always come in with your peppers. And then you set it aside in kind of a quarantine area. A couple days later, you do the same thing. You bring it inside. And if you provide really bright light, like it's underneath a four foot long uh, shop light and keep the plant really close to those fluorescent lights, it will flower and fruit for you indoors over the winter. Even if it doesn't do well indoors, just stays alive, you'll have a very large plant to start with next season. When I put out my second and third year peppers, I typically get ripe red, even full-size bell peppers uh, before my first tomato plant. It's a great trick. They are truly perennial. I can remember you talk about habaneros. I was down in Santa Fe and I saw a 30-year-old habanero tree that had, had never died. It was just the perfect climate for it to survive over winter. And it was stunning. I mean, nobody could have made a piece of art that nice. Okay, John? All right. Well, you can try that with your peppers if you like. Otherwise, we'll try to contact the Vatican and decide if what happened for you was truly the miracle of Yellow Springs, Ohio. All right, John. Thanks for calling. All right, our phone number, our new phone number, write it down on your refrigerator or your dishwasher, whatever you look at the most often, is 1-833-727-9588. Mark, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi, Mike. How are you? I am just ducky today, Mark. Thank you for asking. How are you, sir? I am good. Thank you very much. And where is Mark I'm good? I'm calling from Deerfield, Illinois, just down the road from the Chicago Botanic Garden. Oh, man, I love Chicago. I grew up in Philadelphia, and when I first visited Chicago, it was like, oh, my God, did I grow up here, too, as well? It's just that, <laughs> that right kind of city. Oh, I love Chicago. All right, Mark, what can we do you for? Uh, well, I was calling with both a question and an answer. Oh, um, good. Then I can just go take a nap. I love these calls. <laughs> Well, the, the uh, which would you prefer me to start with? Well, let's start with the question. Okay. The question is, I have a camellia, which is one of the cold-hardy varieties, um, and it's uh, reportedly cold-hardy to zone 6, but here in Chicago, we're 5B. Yeah. So my, my plan was to bring this camellia, which is in a, a very large pot, to bring it in to my garage in the dead of winter to protect it from the elements. Um, the area of the garage where I'm going to place it is up against um, interior walls of the house, uh, and the garage rarely gets below 20 degrees um, in, the, in the dead of winter. The problem is it's also um, uh, there are no windows in the garage. So my question is, do I need to get some sort of light uh, to provide some some light source in the middle of the winter? And also, do you recommend any insulation of the pot or the plant 
uh, in the dead of winter when it's in the garage. Um, yeah, and okay, uh, should I ask you what your answer is, or is that a different topic? Different topic. Okay, so um, you are correct. It won't survive outside. The fact that it's in a pot um, means that you can bring it inside. Now, if you want to be a true cowboy gardener, I presume, are you going to have to lay this thing on its side, or is your garage big enough to accommodate it? Oh, it, it's still a small plant, so it's totally fine to accommodate. If you because bring it in, uh, is there any chance you'd think about bringing it into the house? Uh, not, not if I want to stay married. No. Okay. All <laughs> right. We got that covered. Um, yeah, so put it in the garage. Uh, put it up in a nice place where you'll see it. And hang a shop light over top of it. A four-foot-long fluorescent tube shop light with two new tubes. And, uh, you know, you can actually get LEDs in the shape of those fluorescent tubes. It's very cool. And if you keep the light really close to the top of the plant and uh, into the center of this shop light thing, uh, I expect it would flower for you over the winter. Um, I would water it very gently. That is not a lot of water over the winter because plants over winter don't use a lot of water. I might feed it almost a homeopathic amount of a liquid plant food, a very dilute. And in terms of protection, I think we just go back to when we used to make uh, spook houses in our basement around Halloween. Just hang a sheet or a blanket in between the plant and the outside world of cold and the plants under the light it's protected from those really harsh breezes um mm -hmm. obviously get in and out of the garage really fast if you have room in the garage for your car most people don't but i think that would be the best way to keep it alive and uh in the tropics these things flower uh every month of the year so you know the worst thing that's going to happen is you're going to go out to your garage and see beautiful flowers. That's awesome. Great. Thank you. And what's your answer? Well, my answer is to a previous phone call I made to you um, several months ago. I, I had called you about my impossibly alkaline soil here uh, and growing azaleas and rhododendron. And you had, had suggested that I not use the ammonium. Oh, yeah. You know, you don't want to use ammonium nitrate unless you're blowing up a building. <laughs> Correct. Um, and you had asked why the, the pH of the soil was so impossibly uh, alkaline here in Chicago, and I have an answer for you. Okay. So apparently several hundred million years ago, the, the, uh, the Chicago area was uh, in the tropics, and there was an ocean here, and the shellfish. Um, that and the and the skeletons of the the shelf of the uh, fish there right. um, created a limestone uh, bedrock. Cool. And so the limestone bedrock is the reason why our pH is so high. And I probably told you to fill the hole with almost a hundred percent peat moss and dust some sulfur around. Did you do that? I did, and they're they they did great through the year and. Hopefully they'll bloom again next spring. That's why I get the big money, Mark. All <laughs> right. Well, thank you for a great question, and thank you for telling me I got one right for a change. 833-727-9588. Diane, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. 
Hi, Mike. How are you? I am just ducky, Diane. Thanks for asking. How you doing? Uh, I'm just ducky, too. And where is my second duck calling from? <laughs> I'm calling from Harleysville, Pennsylvania. Okay. Uh, very close to the site of the Philadelphia Folk Festival that's held every year in August. Uh, yeah, and that involves part of my question here. Um, but first, congratulations on 20 years of your show. I love it. And I enjoyed watching it on TV last Saturday, too. Oh, thank um, you. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, well, the interview on Poison Ivy was very informative. Um, it, but now, I, I help with weed whacking on several occasions during the summer on the grounds where the Philadelphia Folk Festival is held each August. And I'm usually very diligent about scoping out where Poison Ivy could exist, uh, especially in some obscure places. But it has surprised me. Uh, this summer was one of those times, and I've already weed-whacked the site. So how do I handle that situation when I realize I've been exposed to poison ivy? Well, uh, way back when, long before I was the editor of Organic Gardening magazine, when I was still a health writer at Rodale, I had a publication called Allergy Relief. And we did a big special issue on poison ivy and poison oak. And I found this great dermatologist at uh, a major hospital in San Francisco who specialized it, in it. He's, he was on call for emergencies. It was um, around this time I found out that poison ivy is the only true medical emergency in dermatology. Because if you like roll around in it, and you're super sensitive to it, you can go into anaphylactic shock. The reaction can be so bad. So I interviewed him and he said, the, the first thing you do if you think you've been exposed is have a helper open up all the doors for you. Don't touch anything. Don't pet your dog. Don't turn the doorknob. Um, get yourself to the bathroom, uh, get your clothes off and wash yourself top to bottom with just cold water. He said, not hot water, hot water, um, helps the oil, the allergenic oil, get into your skin. And for some reason, this oil is totally water-soluble. So he said you had 20 minutes, absolutely guaranteed, no matter how bad the exposure was, no matter how sensitive you were, you had 20 minutes to just wash it off with cold water. And I asked him about the old uh, thing about using jewel weed because some people will say jewelweed is always growing near poison ivy. It's the antidote with the poison. And he said, probably not, but if you've played with jewelweed, it's a very liquidy plant. There's a lot of water in the stem. So it's not as good as running water, but it would get some of the oil off your skin. But I got something even better than that, Diane, or as they say <laughs> on TV. Wait, there's more. When um, Umar, the poison ivy guy, was on the show, he brought a ton of props, not all of which we had time to get to. And one of them, and I felt so bad about it, I kept it here in the studio knowing we would get to this topic. It's called Zanfell, Z-A-N-F-E-L. And he has cases of this around for his workers and the people whose property he's clearing because this is a product. and. Uh, uh, Umar swears by it, and he's the poison ivy guy of all time. You can use this after you begin to break out. 
after you begin to develop the rash and there's like, I don't know, exfoliants, emollients in this, something, but it's all calculated to get under your skin and lift the remaining oil off for easy cleaning. And I said, come on, Umar, it sounds almost too good to be true. And he said, yeah, but he vouched for it. I don't know if we, uh, I've interviewed Umar a, a number of times. I don't know if he said it yesterday, but this guy is crazy. You know, he makes his living off taking 900 pound vines out of trees, vines that are 25 years old. He is incredibly sensitive to poison ivy. He gets it anytime he touches it. So he says he uses this and it clears it off. And it's called Zanfel, Z-A-N-F-E-L. And it's available over the counter at drugstores. And it claims within 60 seconds, you'll start to feel some relief. And within a couple of hours after that, the rash will practically be gone. I didn't think a product like that existed, but apparently it does. Um. Okay. Well, thank you, Mike. Well, thank um, you, Diane. All right. Well, welcome back to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of PBS 39 in beautiful Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath. Later on in the show, there are only 30,000 different members of the Scarab Beetle family that might have been feeding on your roses this past summer. We're not going to introduce you to all of them, but we will tell you about the most important ones when we get to the question of the week. We're also going to take more of your fabulous phone calls. But now it's time for me to introduce an old friend and a very special guest, Don DeVault, uh, an organic farmer here in Veracruz, PA, who has created a whole new income stream out of the wonderful herbs and fruits they produce at Pheasant Hill Farm. Don, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thank you, Mike. Pleasure to be here. Well, before we get started on all what this wonderful material is, when I would speak to farming groups about trying to make money, one of the things I would talk about was the added value. Um, not only getting the premium for your family-grown food, your organically-grown food, but to do things with it, uh, you know, to, to make jams and jellies. Uh, you know I make my own garlic powder out of my garlic harvest, and it's a killer. Um, and that seems to be really often the difference between profit and loss on a farm is if they take their produce and make something special out of it. You appear to have crossed a major line here. Well, more and more so, I think what you're saying is true. Um, the difficulty is it's like adding another full-time job to an already very full-time job. Um, I just happen to like to work a lot. So, uh -huh. yeah, it's, it's, it's worked out well. So what you have done with the herbs and, uh, and fruits of the family farm is you make a drink called kombucha, right? Kombucha, yeah. Kombucha. Kombucha. Yes. Right. Um, and it's very popular, 
and I know your stuff is hugely popular. You already have a huge fan base. We'll talk about the ways you distribute this. Right. Um, but when did this whole trend get started? When did we see these bottles of funny-looking stuff? Well, the trend is, is pretty recent. You're talking about around 2000. I think GTs was the really big mover in the industry. Um, and then it caught a little bit of bad press around 2010 when there was a voluntary recall in Whole Foods. Mm -hmm. um, but since then, product is back on the shelves with some tweaking, and it's, it's everywhere you look at this point. So we have, from the movie The Blob, <laughs> starring Steve McQueen, this insane-looking jug that looks like it belongs on an old episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Yeah. Um, and this is, quote, The Mother. The mother, uh, the SCOBY, which is the Scoby symbiotic, no pretty much, yeah, the symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast. That's the, the most proper name for it. But you'll also hear it called a mushroom. Um, that in the, the historical terms is one, is one of the possible sources for the name. So. so what is it? It is a cellulosic material that's produced by the bacteria. Now the bacteria wants oxygen. It's, it's an aerobic fermenter. So it'll float the bacteria to the surface so it can access the oxygen. And at the same time, and here's the symbiosis in this relationship, it's sealing off oxygen because the majority of the yeast, which is living underneath this mushroom, uh, is an anaerobic fermenter. So everybody's getting what they want just because this blob is there. And what does the blob do in terms, I mean, it makes it a naturally uh, sparkling carbonated beverage, right? Well, that's coming from the yeast. Um, now, this is similar if you, people are familiar with apple cider vinegar as sort of a health tonic. Um, in order to get to apple cider vinegar, you first have to produce hard cider. The yeast produces alcohol, the bacteria converts that alcohol into, in this case, a number of different organic acids. Acetic acid, which you know from apple cider vinegar, mm. is principal among them. So instead of taking something and making an alcoholic beverage out of it and going home and being really happy about that, you make the alcoholic beverage and then you ruin it? Pretty much. <laughs> that's, that's the point, yep. Now, and well, is there such a thing as plain there is plain kombucha. Yeah, yeah, you've got some here. Oh, okay. Generally, my uh, little glasses. When people ask me what kombucha is, instead of going into a lengthy story, I just give them a taste of something. So this is, this is the uh, this is non unflavored or unflavored. naked stuff. Yeah. Should I? Should you have shaken it or anything? No. Now this stuff hasn't been force carbonated. Now you said a naturally sparkling beverage. Looks like apple juice. Yeah. Oh, that's very nice. Yeah, it's light, sweet, sour tea. Yeah. Very light carbonation on this because this just went into the bottle. Now, if I wanted to carb this up as a as a home brewer, this is a good style bottle. You just leave it in these, and um, that way you can, yep. Yeah. So it's like old style beer bottles, yeah, like, right? Like with your Grolsch bottle with the yeah. cap. Yeah. Right. And now this is a new style beer bottle, but the bottle costs twenty dollars. That's right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> So in front of us, we have four different jars. Mm -hmm. I can tell without smelling or touching that the first jar here is lavender. It is just 
it's just such a beautiful color. I mean, there's nothing else that looks like that. And there's nothing else that smells like that. It's one of the most pleasant things to harvest. Um, so to now have a, a real serious utility in um, secondary fermentation is the, is the place where all our farm flavor goes into that base or naked product. And you're growing the lavender. That's right. And you grow everything that goes into your? As much as possible. There are a couple things that I'll source. A man's got to know his limitations. So there yeah. are a couple things that I source I, I from. I have none. I, you know, of course. A <laughs> uh, couple things that I source from uh, growers that I know who are already doing things that would take me years to get into. Right. Um, so I focus on what I know how to do well and apply it. Okay. Yeah. So, um, and then this looks like a substance that's gaining popularity in Colorado and California. It almost smells a bit like it too. What do we got here? Yeah, that's actually chamomile. Chamomile. Uh, yep. Yep. And that's, that's oh, about my second favorite. It's beautiful. <clears throat> it is. And what is this? Is this... This seems to be mostly flower buds? Mostly flower buds. So I actually use um, a blueberry rake, a uh, cheap little blueberry rake, right. like they'd use for the wild berries in Maine, right. and uh, go through and harvest, you know, just rake off all That's the buds. That's sweet. Yeah. Um, and again, chamomile, so you mix it in with chamomile. Theoretically, it should be a relaxant, make you sleepy. Right. Do you have a chamomile? I don't have a chamomile here. Do you have the um, <clears throat> lavender? Uh, no, what I've what got, are you? I've got, um, <laughs> I've got Dennis Hop Pear, Simon Limon, um, let's see, a mint blueberry, uh, the blue Hindu. Oh, blue Hindu. Pinko Gorilla. I got I got to do a blue Hindu. Um, I'll grab you one of these. What, what is a blue Hindu? Well, another of the herbs that I grow a lot of is, uh, Tulsi, which is an adaptogenic herb. Now those you can just drink right out of the bottle there, Mike, if you want. Yeah, may yeah. I? Go for it. I'm showing. Where's my paper bag? Oh, that's that's very nice. Uh -huh. The flavor is very light, yep. but I taste it in there. Right. And do you have your blueberries in here? Yep, those are our blueberries. It's our Tulsi. Um, now this is one. You'll notice that first the naked one that you drank. Go Phillies! <laughs> had no carbonation added to it. This one has been carving up for one day. In order to maintain a, a baseline somewhere with something, I force carbonate everything to, to maintain a consistent level of carbonation so that it's what people would expect because the flavor, even for the same variety, will change week to week. Right, because it's all fresh herbs. Or in the case of blueberries, I was over the farm not long ago right. and opened up one of your freezers there literally must have been a half ton oh, yeah. of blueberries frozen. You have a huge blueberry patch. It was a good year, farm. right. Yep, and we've had those blueberries for some of the plants 30 years. Long time, yeah, I've been, I, I come and steal them when you guys are but on But again, the, the utility that we get out of them because we can freeze them, because we use them in this, you know, our blueberries are just as good now in January and February as they are when we're picking them in July. I think blueberries, on a side note for gardeners, I think blueberries are the fruit that freezes the best and the easiest. That's great. You put the individual blueberries on like a baking sheet, mm -hmm. slide those in the freezer. When they're hard, you pour them into a hard plastic container, and then they resuscitate really well. Yeah. And 
it's really cool to have cold frozen berries on your cereal in the morning. Yep. I like that. It's like snap, crackle, pop. Bet. So you have how many different variations? This is sold in lots of places now. Where where have where is your brand, which we should say is called Porch Tea, but it's not right. spelled like porch. It's Porch with a T, which is a little family history and. Um, I'm a dad now, so I can say that dads are a little bit dorky. <laughs> um, but um, there was a misspelling of, of porch on the original blueprint from my, my parents' house, which was oh, the, the okay. farmhouse, the dream house. So, so it's a family joke. Yep. Always has been. Cool. Yeah. Now, you you market it. Is this a 12-ounce or 16 Now, that's, that's a 12-ounce. And so this I've been doing for about 12 years now, and the growth has been amazing, just like what we're doing on the farm. But it's, it's, I've had to make some quick and hard decisions sometimes. So those large-style bottles. I love the concept of you selling this non-alcoholic, lightly-flavored beverage in growlers. Right. Because people, you actually have uh, a beer taps in health food stores. You have these giant, and they're huge. Yep. And people, just like in, in a classy brew pub, They'll bring their growler back and fill it up, and you don't so have to keep buying glass all the that's time. That's a wonderful. That's exactly right. It's a wonderful way to do it because it saves me labor, it saves me cost, and people are reusing things. Yes. Right. So if you go to the reduce, reuse, recycle thing. Yeah. And where is your porch tea available now? I know you're. You have more retail outlets than you can actually serve. I do, and I and I have people still coming to me and again this goes back to the the decisions that you've got to make about so run off where we are now uh wow i've i've got you're at the easton farmers well so the big farmers markets uh easton doylestown and lansdale um now those run till mid-november easton runs a bit longer i've got health food stores and cafes uh my my biggest outlet the people who are moving the most is ole valley organics really and they that's it's great to have that be the case because they're another farm-based operation you talk about adding value to things they opened up a farm stand they sell their own produce there they uh, have brought in other producers my stuff is doing really well there so they go through six seven eight kegs a week now do you think you'll ever go national with this or do you just like the idea of it staying local I want to just say, look, farms around the country. I get, we're going right back to Dirty Harry and knowing your limitations on yeah. that. Yeah, um, because I, I think it would be great for, you know, every small-scale organic farm to learn how to do this yeah. and to get a lot of extra value. And, you know, people are buying local. Uh, the face of the farmer is on the herbs. There's, there's a, and the recycling aspect of the growlers. Yep. It, it's a very attractive proposition from you a lot it. of different ways. For sure. And um, I think in terms of growth, the next place I'm going with this is uh, probably to the alcoholic side of things, but lighter things like, and traditional things, ginger beers. Um, I do grow hops uh, already for the kombucha, but so and do you either say out loud or feel that the lavender or the hops based infusions would be more relaxing and like sleepy time tea? Well, I do. One of those jars up there is actually red raspberry leaf, um, which is 
another point is that of this, this one here yep, you bet that's this one so if onions. you smell I, that you i get, grow raspberry so i know what it looks like you get uh you know tannins you get a very tea sort of smell from it and it makes a nice tea it's an herbal tea base so that one if you got little kids or if you're drinking it at night right the herbal tea base is the way to go because most of these are pretty energizing. Mm -hmm. um, it's a great drink for in the morning or, you know, after you start to get the caffeine jitters, uh -huh. but you want to keep going. Well, and I noticed that raspberry leaves are an integral part of most of the Celestial Seasonings tea blends. So it's, it's a good filler and it has a, a heavy base tea. And here you're using something that you can't sell. Right. You know, you sell the berries, right. but generally you compost the right. leaves. So, you know. Your carbon footprint is the size of your daughter's right now. Exactly. So anything that does double duty on the front. Okay, so where can people find out more about you and what you're doing with your product? Uh, you can check out the website, which is just porchtea.com. Yeah, but spell it. Uh, P-O-R-T-C-H-T-E-A. Right. Um, and uh, I'm a little behind on that because uh, <laughs> I'm busy. Uh, we're in the process of putting up a new fermentary on the farm, and that's taking some extra time. So. You know that I know you and your uh -huh. family, and I'm a frequent visitor at right. the farm. I have watched this grow from a little hole-in-the-wall operation yeah. um, to you're almost the Anheuser-Busch of kombucha. <laughs> you know. Not quite, because they're already out there. Um, there's some pretty big producers in Vermont and uh, Portland, California, New York. Um, but again, your traditional audience right. for the farmer's market, to see the face of the farmer, to know that there is low mileage in transporting this exactly. food or product to you. That's yeah. very appealing to many aspects of many generations right now. For sure. For sure. All right. Well, Don, Don DeVault of Porch, misspelled, T, P-O-R-T-C-H, T-E-A. Thanks very much for bringing all your wonderful blob-like materials and your delicious drinks and your herbs into the studio. It's been Thank a real pleasure. Thank you very pleasure. much, Mike. Really enjoyed it. I'm your host, Mike McGrath, and we're in the stretch now, cats and kittens. In just a little bit, we'll get to the question of the week about which of the 30,000 scarab beetles may have assassinated your roses this past summer. It's interesting and informative and it's coming right up after a couple more of your fabulous phone calls at 1-833-727-9588. Mark, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi, Mike. Hello, Mark. How are you doing, man? I'm doing great. And where is Mark doing great? I'm in North Coventry Township. I planted some nard bulbs and, uh, I planted about maybe five or six in a clump. I planted about 30 of these clumps for two years now. And I get the, uh, I get the, you know, the, uh, the grass type of uh, shoots that come up from those bulbs. But I'm not getting the flower. Okay, and it has all the greenery above it. All the greenery is there, yes. But no, um, no flower yet. No flower okay, yet. Okay, so here's what I want you to do. Before the weather gets any cooler, and you realize already the hours of daylight are significantly shorter, yeah. I want you to pot it up into a very nice plastic pot uh, filled with 80% seed starting mix, uh, soil-free mix, you know, potting soil, yeah. and 20% compost, 
And let's guess that maybe this has things in common with paper whites and amaryllis. So I would only pot up the bulb to about half its height. You know, the bulb itself. I want the top half of the bulb exposed. Don't put it outside. Just try to grow it inside as if it was an amaryllis or a paper white. And let's see what happens. And you say the the name of the bulb is Nerd. Was that right? No, no. No, Nard. 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 Close like to a nerd. nard. That's that's somebody who hangs around with a nerd. Is a nard. <laughs> right, a nard. And and one of our watchers or listeners will come in and we'll get a great phone call, and they'll explain exactly how it's supposed to work. And maybe I was right. Even uh, we'll find okay. out in an upcoming show. All right. All right, okay. sir. I'll give it a try, Mike. <laughs> All right. Thanks yeah. a lot, Mark. 1-833-727-9588. Sharon, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi, Mike. How are you? I am just ducky, Sharon. Thank you for asking. How are you doing? Pretty good. We've got pretty weather here Well, Virginia. where do you have pretty weather? In Virginia. Northern Virginia, actually. In the Herndon area is where I'm at. Okay. Uh, in the greater Washington, D.C. area. Exactly. Exactly. All so, right. And I don't know how you got the good weather. You're the only one who's got it. But what can we do for Sharon, who's hogging all the good weather from the rest oh, of us? Oh, well, we're hogging the good weather. But, you know, we're having a problem with our spotted lantern fly. That only happened this year i was um you know i'd say i was upset to hear that it had traveled so far but you know these things can't be contained um the spotted lanternfly is a crazy looking pest from Ah. asia um i saw the nymph stage in my garden this year for the first time and i hadn't done enough research to realize what the nymphs looked like they were crazy kind of pop art mm-hmm. you know things they're totally black with white stars all over their body and the adult the adult looks like a villain on the old Batman 66 TV show come on yes. th- those colors are ridiculous yes, you know very vibrant yeah you can't yeah. even say what color it is it's just all of them and now we know a lot more the theory is it came into the country on um, a load of imported stone Yes, that's um, what we heard, too. From China. And oddly enough, or perhaps um, not odd at all, it traveled to Virginia on a load of stone from the place the stone was delivered to in Pennsylvania. The eggs are very hard to spot. Uh, they look like splatters of mud. And that's how they travel. Uh, the adults lay their eggs. They love to... S- at, they love to lay them in the wheel wells of cars. I mean, how clever is that? And um, when I investigated this in Virginia, again, that just happened this year, um, the site where they were discovered right there is a railroad line that goes past. So it's right. like almost, geez, why don't you go to the airport too, guys? You'll get there faster. Exactly. Yeah. I had been underestimating what this pest was capable of until I saw a documentary just a few weeks ago about what had happened to a vineyard in Pennsylvania. It had destroyed entire rows of grapes. I mean, this guy is out of business. He lost like 40% of his vines. They, um, you don't get one lanternfly. They come by the hundreds Mm -hmm. and they smother a plant and they suck all the sap out of it. 
Yeah. Um, so luckily, their first host is the so-called tree of heaven, a trash tree that's also from Asia. Mm-hmm. And what's happening in Virginia, it's up in the Winchester area so yes, far. Yes, that's what we were told. And it's being pretty much isolated. And so the people who own that stone facility, uh, they've been very cool. They have either done it themselves or they've allowed the state to come in and do it. Um, They killed all the small Tree of Heaven trees. And the others they injected with uh, a systemic herbicide so that anything that fed on the tree would die. Die. Now, okay. normally, I don't like insecticides of any kind, um, especially if there's a chance that it's a, it's a tree or a plant that's going to produce flowers that attract bees. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I talked to a great guy in the Department of Entomology at Virginia Polytech who's, like, leading the, the charge on this, and he said they made sure that bees do not come and the flowers on Tree of Heaven are almost, you almost can't see them. They're negligible. Okay. But it, bees don't come there. Really, the only thing that's going to be harmed is an insect that, you know, starts chewing at the leaves or trying to drill into the bark. Okay. So in this case, where no insecticide is getting into the environment, no bees are being harmed, I have to get behind it. I call that common sense pest control. I'm I'm totally organic, but I'll, I will never be organic to the point of being ignorant. Yes. Um, I'm glad you called because we, you know, now there's no telling where it is because it's, I believe it's also shown up in Jersey and Delaware. But oddly enough, not Maryland, which is in between Pennsylvania and Virginia. Yeah. And I figure the guy never stopped to take a leak or something. He just drove <laughs> all night. That is oh. one of the prime ways that they're moving around. And uh, we're, you know, if you're seeing this show on TV, we're showing images of the insect as you and I speak Mm -hmm. in all its different stages. If you're listening to us on the radio, please just look up Spotted Lanternfly, learn what it looks like, learn what the eggs look like. If you see an egg case, destroy it. And if you see the insect in an area where we don't think it is yet, you got to report it. it's going to be a tough case. These these invasive insects are tough. Um, but if people like you and me getting the word out, that's mm-hmm. the best defense that we have. All right. Thank you so much for your call, Cher. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. As promised, it's time for the question of the week. What's chafing your roses? Now, question comes from someone with an unusual name. So first, I'm going to spell it, A-N-N-E-K-E, and then I'm going to tell you how she says it's pronounced, Unica Unica, in Lake Leelanau, Michigan. She writes, I've had an attack of rose shafers. Am I spelling that right? Anyway, they devastated my rose bushes this year. No matter how fast I picked the little guys off, more came flying in. They attacked other plants as well. In fact, a few are still hanging on to my beans. What can I spray on them instead of seven? Well, you were very close there. The insect's name is Rose Chafer, not Schaefer, which was the name of a childhood friend of mine who I never saw attack a rose. Now, before we move on to your pest, I'll note one other misspelling in your email that is so common in garden communication. You wrote S-E-V-E-N as in the number seven. 
the actual name of this incredibly toxic insecticide that you wish to avoid is S-E-V-I-N. I make a point of this because many gardeners have written to say that they've been told that seven was a combination of seven natural ingredients. Nothing could be further than the truth. The National Pesticide Information Center, which is a cooperative agreement between the EPA and Oregon State University, reports that Carabil, the active ingredient in seven, has been evaluated by the EPA as, quote, likely to cause cancer. It is also highly toxic to bees and earthworms, and birds that were exposed to low amounts had fewer eggs, and the eggs that did hatch produced fewer healthy babies. So thank you for seeking an alternative here. It's nasty stuff. Now, on to quote Rose Chafers. Entomologists like to differentiate between Australian chafers, European chafers, and North American chafers. All are members of the enormous scarab beetle family, which also includes the notorious Japanese beetle and the night-flying Asiatic beetle. And yes, the name scarab does date back to ancient Egypt, where these beetles were revered, probably because early Egyptians didn't grow roses. Now, you'll only see the Australian chafer in Australia, but it's extremely colorful if you do see it. It's yellow, green, and brown with a design on its back that looks like a violin, hence its common name of fiddler beetle. The European chafer, also called the green rose chafer and just plain rose chafer, is a dazzling <clears throat> is a dazzlingly bright metallic green. You'll find it in the UK and Southern and Central Europe. The least attractive member of the family is the North American chafer. It's a kind of dirty, tan, yellowish color with yellow hairs that, as with many humans, fall off with age. They are also the most destructive of the group. Like their shiny green and copper-colored cousin, the Japanese beetle, the North American chafer tends to feed in swarms, eating the inside parts of the leaves while avoiding the veins, giving the plants a classic skeletonized lacy appearance. Like Japanese beetles, the first one to feed also give off a pheromone that attracts more beetles, setting off a feeding frenzy. Again, just like those Japanese beetles, their immature larval grub form is also destructive. While Japanese beetle grubs stick to eating the roots of lawn grasses in the late summer and fall, North American chafer grubs feed on the roots of ornamental plants as well. Oh, and if your roses are getting eaten at night and the damage isn't lacy but chunks out of the leaves, the culprit might be the nocturnal Asiatic beetle. May and June beetles are also members of this enormous scarab family, and these ones also attack plants in the United States. Luckily, control is the same for all of the scarabs. First, put out a single Japanese beetle trap near your smelliest roses in late spring and check it every day. As soon as you catch the first beetle, take the trap down, seal it in plastic, and hide it in the basement. Like professional growers, you're not using the trap to take care of the problem. You're using it for monitoring and early detection because now you know that the beetles have come to town and it's time to take action. A good first move is to cut any roses that are in bloom and bring them indoors to a vase, and that'll cut down on the attractive scent of your landscape. Then spray the plants weekly with BTG. 
That's the brand new strain of BT that only affects beetles and weevils. Any beetles that eat the sprayed parts of the plant will die, but there's no danger to people, pets, bees, birds, wombats, etc. Gardens Alive sells this version as beetle juice, and it may be available under other names at retail. Just don't say it three times in a row. The key here is to kill off the first wave of beetles rapidly so that that swarming instinct doesn't kick in. After a month or so, you can relax the spraying because the rest of the beetles in your neighborhood are going to be eating other people's roses. This new form of BT also comes in a granular form that kills grubs underground. Apply this version of BTG to lawns in early August, as soon as you stop seeing the adults flying around, and you'll take out any grubs that survived your previous tender mercies. You can also apply beneficial nematodes to the soil in late summer. These microscopic predators will seek out and destroy your grubs. Nematodes are also effective in the spring, as long as the soil is nice enough and warm enough for them to easily move around and do their grub hunting. And finally, an old canister vacuum is a great solution for rogue beetles on unsprayed plants. Be sure to taunt them as they go down that tube. Well, that sure was a lot of information about the big bad family of scarab beetles now, wasn't it? Luckily for you, the question of the week appears in print at the Gardens Alive website. To read it over in detail, just click the link for the question of the week at our website, which will always be youbetyourgarden.org. Or, heck, just go to the Gardens Alive website if that's your idea of a good time. All right, and Gardens Alive supports the You Bet Your Garden Question of the Week, and you will always find the newest Question of the Week at the Gardens Alive website. Yikes, my producer is threatening to chafe me if I don't get out of this studio. We must be out of time, but you can call us anytime at 1-833-PBS-WLVT, which translates in numerical form to 1-833-727-9588. Or send us your email, you're tired, you're poor, your wretched refuse teeming towards our garden. Sure, to do that, please go to youbetyourgarden.org and you'll see how to send us your email, as long as you send us your location, which is important. You'll find all of our new contact information at the same website, youbetyourgarden.org, where you'll also find the answers to many of your garden questions, audio of this show, video of this show, and our podcast. Ken Queter plays our theme song. Our chief content officer is Yoni Greenbaum. Our engineer is Charlie with no last name. Our social media director is Amanda McGrath. Check out her fine work and stay current with what's happening with the show every day at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page. Our website wonder is Anastasia Weckerly. Jazzy Jonas Bowen is our audio editor. Our director is Javier Diaz. Tavia Minnick worked the phones. Regal Ron Rushy is our director of underwriting. Our marketing madman is Jim McDonald. Affable Andy Cummins makes all the equipment work. CEO Tim Fallon is the leader of the pack. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. I'm sorry that I gave our chief engineer a new name in our first show and that I got the phone number wrong and that I gave out the wrong email. Picky, picky, picky. Heck, they spelled my name wrong once. It's Mick, M-C-G-R-A-T-H. Not pH, that's for a soil test. 
and no X. I got too many of them in school. What? Stop ranting? I can't stop ranting. Ranting is my middle name. No. Yeah, you're right. No, it isn't. 